Summer Short, Super Groups, Super ACOs, and Oshner's Value-Based Care Journey. Today, I speak with Eric Gallagher. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Here's a quote from Rolling Stone magazine. A supergroup is a very fragile thing. Rock bands are always about balancing huge egos. But when those egos are oversized from the get-go, it can lead to huge problems. That's why supergroups like Blind Faith often fail to go beyond a single album and why long-lasting ones like CSNY have had drama that never seemed to end. Hmm, That's apropos because turns out super ACOs may have some similar issues. A super ACO means multiple ACOs or CINs, clinically integrated networks, which are each comprised of multiple practices or provider organizations, and it's all under different ownership. Said another way, there are multiple levels of competitors, frenemies, if you will, trying to work together or not work together as the case may be. There's a lot of infrastructure complexity and process complexity and frankly inefficiency. There's trust issues. There's the problem that rule number one of change management is to create quick wins so that everyone can smell potential success and realize it's possible so momentum happens. But if doing anything is hyper complicated, then it's really tough to have a quick win. Today in this summer short, this is what I am chatting about with Eric Gallagher. We talk about how Oshner evolved from a super ACO or super CIN into its current form. This summer short is a 13-minute clip that went a little far afield from the main topic of episode 405, which was the full episode with Eric Gallagher, and therefore I cut it. But as I always do when I cut an actually pretty great section from a show for reasons of time, I have been on the edge of my seat to share it with you. This show is actually a very nice follow-on to the one with Dan Serrano, episode 410 from last week. As Eric describes Oshner's history and its path forward, it is a case study of some of the recommendations that Dan mentioned this summer short also really echoes some of the themes in episode 409, which was with Larry Bauer, and also one upcoming with Jody Lynn Owens. What will work in one local market, don't count on it working elsewhere or not work as well at a minimum. Healthcare is local. This is a lesson many investors and entrepreneurs looking for rapid scaling prototypes have learned the hard way. And listening to Eric, it's really easy to catch the why for that. If this topic intrigues you, also listen to the show with Dr. Amy Scanlon. That was episode 402. Also episode 349 with Lisa Trumbull. And lastly, I would recommend the show with Dr. David Carmouche. Dr. Carmouche was talking about Oshner's work improving patient outcomes with a Medicare Advantage plan. All these links are in the show notes, by the way. One final note, point to ponder, scale. To really get value-based contracts, you need it. You need it to afford the infrastructure and you need it to demand a seat at the table. But yeah, with that, everything in moderation, I guess, because any scale that starts to approach monopoly proportions seems to invite bad behavior. You have to get big enough to matter in the market, but not so big that your big footprint squashes market dynamics. Because it seems like many succumb to the siren song at that point of putting profits over patients. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Eric Gallagher, welcome to Relentless Health Value. 
Hi, Stacy. Glad to be a part of the conversation today and always a pleasure talking with you. Your clinically integrated network had a really interesting history. So you started out as an, in air quotes, super ACO, like a super group, right? Like you had a bunch of ACOs and then that all rolled up into your ACO, but it was all under different ownership. But now you're under one balance sheet. How did you get from where you started in that super ACO structure to realizing that maybe that wasn't going to work as well and then rolling into the way that you are now? Yeah, we started as a super CIN or ACO. I don't even know if that term's being used anymore. There's no capes involved in, (laughs) in what we're doing. It was really a network of networks. At the time, there wasn't a lot in terms of clinically integrated networks and accountable care organizations. And I think there was a little bit of a dip your toe in the water kind of approach when we sought to create the network and find our clinically integrated partners. And what I mean by that is most organizations understood that they needed to pay attention to value-based care. They needed to pay attention to the population health movement. But we're still talking largely about organizations health systems, hospitals, physician groups who are to a certain extent competitors. They're in the same market. And so I think developing the full trust in this new model with another organization that to a certain extent could be seen as a competitor, that was a big ask. And so we developed this network of networks where there was independence and autonomy across five different clinically integrated networks that we said we would clinically integrate under the same umbrella. And really within the the 18 to 24 months that it took to really develop that network, we already knew that wasn't the model that was really going to drive change and position us for being successful in value based care. What were the signs? So in that 18 to 24 month, let's just say dip the toe in the water learning exercise, what were the signals which indicated that you would not necessarily be able to achieve the goals that you were looking to achieve? Part of it was just complexity and inefficiency. So if you think about five clinically integrated networks, that is five boards, that is five finance committees of each of those networks, that's five quality committees of each of those networks, that's five whatever other data sharing, et cetera, type committees and governance bodies that you needed to engage in, that you needed to communicate with, that you needed to distribute information with. And so we put it all on paper at one point. And I think we had over 36 governing committees, boards that really got in the way of our ability to collaborate and just to be efficient. So that was one of the the first signs. I think on the flip side of that, we really had to have some success. We had to gain the trust of our partners that were coming together for the first time. So engaging with the leadership groups from these different organizations, with the physician leaders, with the administrative leaders, and actually getting them into value-based agreements where we showed some success and we showed some value, that was certainly critical to them understanding there was potential here and we really needed to evolve to accelerate our goals. It's interesting what you're talking about because... 
some people might be listening to this thinking, wow, you should have just gone from zero to the right answer or at least further up the curve toward the right answer. But actually what you're talking about is kind of classic change management and crossing the chasm where you have to start small. You have to get a quick win, which I think is what you just articulated, because there is a recognition that until you have trust, especially amongst competitors, and there's a lot of lessons to be learned along the way, you got to start with something that's small enough and not super risky to build some basic competencies and the ability to work together and form the relationship which is actually needed to take the next step. So I think what you're really describing actually is step one in almost any successful collaboration roadmap. Although it always feels frustrating in the moment, like you're wasting time. It's actually a very essential step. Absolutely. And really, sometimes you have to take a step backwards. We actually reduced the size of our MSSP ACO after a few years of operating that in order to say, okay, this isn't just a physician alignment entity. Our goals are not just to bring everybody we can into an ACO, into a downside risk agreement. So we took a step back and we we actually reduced the size of our ACO for a couple of years and really had to prove that we could be successful in an advanced risk arrangement. Having that success there was really appealing to all of the physicians who weren't in the ACO. And so we've grown that ACO now by over 110% in the last four years, just based on having that consistent and continued success. But it really took us to to make a tough decision, hit pause and, and actually take a little bit of a step backwards. The thing that I would just point out here is that a lot of people, a lot of ACOs are formed exactly like you said, in order to align physicians and get everybody under the same banner so that you can negotiate better FFS rates ultimately. Right. So if that is your goal, then having as many physicians as possible doesn't really matter how aligned everybody is to a certain extent, because the main goal isn't to produce value-based care success. The main goal isn't to ultimately take downside risk in the future, like really. And it could be implicit, not explicit, but really the goal is a very short-term one to get leverage. So it, it sounds very much like from the very beginning, there was a different intent here from that. It's funny that you say that because when we started the Auctioner Health Network, I mean, one of our stated goals was to do fee-for-service contract negotiation for everyone in the CIN. And now we laugh, we laugh at that idea. It's contrary to what we're really about now and what our mission is in terms of value-based care. It is funny, that's how most CIN started, but really now it's about changing the economic model and really thriving in one that has more value, more return than the potential fee-for-service model. What you did is you, you started out maybe on a traditional path. At some juncture, was there some aha moment that somebody actually had where, as you said, the pause button got pressed. You realized that you can't just start out trying to boil the ocean with every practice in the area aligned or not aligned, right? Like somehow or another, your charter changed. What happened there? I think we can give some credit to policymakers and to CMS, right? So the, the whole FFS negotiation concept would really imply that value-based care is going to be driven on the backs of commercial health plans and commercial products. And that just hasn't happened. 
Meanwhile, on the other hand, I will say that on the Medicare and Medicare Advantage side, we've seen a lot more advancement in the models. And certainly there's no opportunity to negotiate better rates with CMS. And in fact, the fee-for-service increases on the Medicare side, you know, that's not happening. So you really had a shift in the environment with CMS as the largest payer with a growing Medicare population and really on the commercial side, not having health plans adopt value-based care with the same pace as was seen on the government side. If I'm understanding what you're saying, and maybe this has to do with your payer mix. If you have lots of a significant proportion of your payer mix in the Medicare Advantage, Medicare and or Medicaid side, and you start looking into the future and seeing those FFS rates not going up, and even on the commercial side, right? Despite the fact that employers are paying ever higher premiums, at the same time, you have these carriers who are achieving ever higher shareholder returns. So it's not like a lot of those premium dollars are trickling down into some of the provider organizations, especially in certain cases. So just sort of looking at that, there was some very strategic decision-making that went on in your organization, which basically said, if we can figure out how to get accountable contracts and through those contracts, collaborate with payers in ways that enables us to actually share the savings, which is more possible if you take downside risk than if you're just doing the upside only, more of a fee-for-service with a sprinkling of a couple of bucks. That is actually the more sustainable business model. Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, we're in Louisiana, in the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. We are not in a thriving economic metropolis. We have a population that is aging like everywhere else, but it's getting smaller. And there there are not a lot of, or really any, large corporations here. And the ability to work with and be innovative with large employers who have just a huge line of healthcare expenditures that they're trying to manage for their employee base, that's not the case really in our market. And then the penetration rates of Medicare Advantage within Louisiana have outpaced the rest of the, the country for a decade. And so we are already at 60% up to 70% in certain counties or, or parishes, as we call them here in Louisiana, in terms of Medicare Advantage penetration. So we've been in an environment that I think the rest of the United States is catching up to in terms of MA penetration. But on the Medicare shared savings side as well, look, we are, so there's about, I think it's 475 ACOs in the country. And ours last year was number 58 in size. So that's, you know, you call that kind of top 14, 15% size-wise. That's really important because if you look at our footprint on a map, that's surprising. Louisiana and the Gulf Coast of Mississippi aren't exactly heavy population centers. So, you know, the fact that we have a larger senior population that we are taking risk on relative to our size within the rest of the country means that we've been ahead of the game. And last year, we were in the top 5% of ACOs in terms of, of shared savings earnings. So we've been punching above our weight class really based on our experience with Medicare Advantage 
and just an appetite on the Medicare side to to get into risk earlier and to really commit to that. Yeah. So just stating the obvious here, one of the reasons why potentially your group was able to get some of the accountable care contracts that you were able to get with these Medicare Advantage plans is a confluence of a couple of factors. Number one is the just the size of the Medicare Advantage penetration in your area, the number of seniors in the area. But then also because your organization is larger, you actually had the scale. So kind of going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, you, you had the scale actually to get a seat at the table in a way that maybe a, a smaller ACO may not have been able to do. Absolutely. I think scale's incredibly important to have that voice and to have that seat to the table. It's also important because the investments required to really change the way that you're delivering healthcare and to be successful in these types of arrangements, they're not small and they're unreasonable or unrealistic or unattainable for a smaller certainly an independent physician practice or even a smaller ACO or CIN. So that that scale is really important. Again, just kind of recapping here, scale matters. You got to have the capital to invest in some of the data capabilities, the technology capabilities. We've discussed this, those kinds of things in other shows, but then also to get the seat at the table. And then also I'm sure there are, there's a critical mass of patients really that's needed to spread out risk. Absolutely. And it didn't hurt that 20 years ago, we had our own Medicare Advantage, the Oxner Health Plan that we sold to Humana, but we had some experience within the health system in managing risk dating back a couple of decades. And, <laughs> I was just going to say, know, you probably learned that lesson the hard way. <laughs> as most things come full circle, we, we relaunched a provider-sponsored Medicare Advantage plan just last year. So we're back in that business as well and pulling out all the old ball caps and t-shirts from a few decades ago. <laughs> Someone still got them in a closet somewhere. So let's talk about going over to our website and typing your email address in the box to get the weekly email about the show that has come out. Sometimes people don't do that because they have subscribed on iTunes or Spotify and or were friends on LinkedIn. What you get in that email is a full and unredacted, unedited version of the whole introduction of the show transcribed. There's also show notes with timestamps, just apprising you of the options that are available. Thanks so much for listening.